1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm really excited to be bringing you an interview I did with Brandi Carlile, who is of course one of the greatest singer-songwriters out there right now. She has a new album out called In These Silent Days. It's really excellent. We talked about that new music, her whole career, and really her whole life up until now, which she also wrote about in her great memoir, which is called Broken Horses. Let's jump right into that interview. Your voice itself was what first caught my attention when I heard your first album, or maybe even just tracks from the first album 16 years ago or whatever it was. And I always thought your voice was amazing as you know many people did, and yet it really has improved as well. You sing very differently now. And in your book, you write about all the, the vocal coaching and stuff that that got you there, but it also seems like there's a psychological element as well to be able to sing More clearly and more powerfully without hurting yourself. And how much is that is technique and how much of it is breaking through some kind of psychological block?
0: Man, that's such a good question. There's so much in it. You know, there's some really basic things like, you know, when I came out of the bars, there had only been non-smoking in in bars and restaurants for a a hot minute. So I had spent my whole life screaming four-hour sets through smoke. And also kind of wanting to and thinking that was really punk rock and loving that. And I had this raspy voice and I was really preoccupied with sounding tough. So there was some psychological gender stuff in that for me too. I didn't want to sound feminine or bell clear. I wasn't worried about pitch, you know. I wanted to scream and yell and and sort of resist.
1: Resist a stereotypical femininity, is that what you mean when you say resist?
0: Yeah, or what I thought was a stereotypical femininity, but... Watching a person's voice come out of adolescence and post-adolescence is is psychological. Physical things are happening too, but they're happening on a parallel course at the exact same time. So I was shedding affectation and sort of restrictive gender binary concepts vocally at the same time that I was actually healing my voice from brutalizing it in bars and on the street for um, my entire life up until that point. And I did hit a peak moment in vocal drama where I um, developed some real damage. And then it made me question all kinds of things like my relationship with alcohol and and my relationship with drugs and being self-destructive on the road. And when I got my shit together in life, my voice got its shit together too. My voice has always been with me, healing and hurting and expressing itself right alongside my soul. It reveals what's happening in my body and in my mind.
1: Uh, T-Bone Burnett, who produced your classic album, The Story, from 2007, you wrote in your book that he had a thing, he kept referring to an affectation in your singing and it drove you crazy. But what was the purported affectation that he was talking about?
0: It's like the thing where I go like, So many stories of where I've been, and how I got to where... Those little Patty Klein gaps, those little things and they were i think pretty damn near constant at the time because you know i was like 20 something and had developed it as almost like a a crutch or some form of expression and, and it does do a thing it does do a thing in my voice where it sort of resets my voice and then i can get into really big notes by doing those little leaps and flips but they started to annoy him <laughs>
1: But it's so demoralizing, though, even if he was trying to, you know, improve you to to be kind of hit again and again on something that's core to your expression. So that it sounds like that was a little tricky.
0: It was really tricky. It was really tricky. And I had a lot of opinions about it at the time. And then once I realized it was something I was doing too much, you know, it was more of like a surgical switch in my sort of vocal style. But I had to be a certain age mbe to a certain point in my career and as a vocalist to actually change it and that's when i realized too you know when i started producing artists i i was hearing things that artists are doing lyrically vocally and musically and i think to myself they're not going to do that in 10 years but it's actually not on me to accelerate their growth away from affectation because that is sort of the exit strategy from youth is Finding ways to sort of shed affectation on your own, stop mimicking your heroes, and start being yourself. But it cannot be accelerated.
1: I believe it was your wife, Catherine, who got you into Joni Mitchell, and that's really interesting because this key artist for you now was a, was a, sort of an adult adoption uh, as far as a, an influence. And I, I think that's really also really interesting because sometimes people freeze their influences. A little earlier, but I think that changed a lot for you embracing Blue and embracing Joni Mitchell and performing Blue and getting that everything about that album from the singing to the composition under your skin. So maybe you can explain how that kind of worked for you.
0: I've gained a lot in life with, you know, through Latter-day Love, you know, getting married later than all my siblings and having children in my mid-30s and my love for Joni Mitchell developing later in life, then you're right. Then most influences develop in, in terms of like really visceral ones. I'm quite an obsessive fan person. I have been my whole life, but like there's nothing more visceral than a sort of adolescent obsession, except for, except for not me. Cause I, <laughs> I immediately dove in to the concept and majesty of Joni Mitchell. And then it, it totally changed me as a writer and as a person. And a lot of that is like what we're, you're so intuitively touching on was that I heard Jenny when I was making the story when T-Bone Burnett played her for me and what I heard was just I felt unapologetic femininity it was like, it sounded like vocal submission to me especially I, I got to that lyric and all I really want it says you know I want to talk to you I want to shampoo you I want to renew you again I just I wanted to turn that off immediately. I had such an adverse reaction to it. Didn't understand why, but it just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to register that. And I don't know that I had ever really felt deep and abiding romantic love at that point either. And maybe it was something Mm -hmm. that I was just shutting down. But I listened to my reaction and just put Joni Mitchell away until I was old enough to understand it.
1: There is a song on the new album, uh, You and Me on the Rock, and that feels to me like one of your most unabashedly Joni moments. I could be wrong.
0: They build wooden houses on frozen ponds in the summertime when the water's gone. Lines in the- no, you're, de- you're dead on. And it was like, we even wrote it on a dulcimer because I told the twins, I was like, guys. If I don't do this just once, just go for it and just be like, yes, everybody, I'm completely influenced by Joni, particularly my influence of covering Blue this year. And if I don't do this one time completely, I'm going to do it a little bit in every song. (laughs) So I was like, let's just do one. And and we did. And I played it for her. And I was dying while I played her that song. You
1: played that for Joni. Yeah. That song. You had to. (laughs) Was this during the uh, one of the Joni jams that, you, that you've been having or a different kind of visit?
0: Yeah, it was a different kind of visit. Um, you know, post, uh, as soon as the vaccine became available and Joni got one and she was eligible long before I was and then I got one. Um, as soon as we could see each other, we did. And I went up to the house and we had dinner, leek soup and drank Pinot Grigio. And I was like, Joni, I want to play you the album. And, and when I got to that song, I was like, because she does not suffer fools or pull punches and she doesn't um abide derivatives you know so but i just i don't know why i just i've got to get it all out there you know so i was like here's what i did this is why i did it and i this was in me i was in i was inspired this is a tribute i had to do it once or i was going to do it forever and so she's listening to it and i'm watching her and she's really grooving and it ended and i was like and she just looks up at me and she goes sounds like a hit (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah.
1: You said that one of your first reactions uh, to Joni was that it wasn't tough enough for you, and part of it I th- is part of it sort of redefining what tough means, or or is it leaving behind the idea of tough as the ideal, or both?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was leaving behind the heteronormative concept that had been imposed on me that tough whatever it was was not feminine was not femininity was not women and I didn't think that was my subtext I didn't think that was my subconscious narrative but as soon as I would hear something that I deemed too feminine I just would go not for me not for me not for me and um really had to evolve out of that that concept I can't Imagine listening to Joni Mitchell now at any age and not thinking, oh, this is Shakespeare. This is as brilliant as musical compositions get.
1: Hmm. And what did you take away specifically from the Blue performance, which you'll be doing again in New York, I believe?
0: Well, first of all, it's like Blue is definitely seen as one of Joni's most, you will call it accessible albums, right? I'm a Hegira girl. Now, but Blue is definitely seen as a gateway drug album into the concept of Johnny Mitchell and where she eventually wound up and will wind up further musically. But um, when you actually have to learn to sing that son of a bitch, it's like it's such a it's such a heavy load. And so <sighs> it was just an exercise in, in in you know vocal ability. It's crazy. Like when you're trying to sing that song. By the way, she played on everything. And I, that's one thing I couldn't quite do. I, I could play on a few of them, Little Green and This Flight and um, River. Um, and I could play a case of you and piano kind of in C. But, like, I had to learn the breaths like I was learning the lyrics. Mm. You know? I'd be like, I would write it down. Mm. I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, traveling, traveling. Breathe, looking for something to set me breathe free. It's so strange you know her timbre and rhythm and the way that she sings and the way that, that that interplays with her dulcimer or her guitar or her piano or whatever she happens to be playing she plays the bongos a lot now which is really cool to watch so it was just it accelerated me out of the stratosphere as a singer and as a musician and and it made me so scared and nervous and I just, I just knew I needed to do that one more time
1: when did you start writing this new album
0: I started writing the album immediately upon finishing the book, which was a, such a shock to me. I don't sit down to write songs because I don't like usually what I do when I do that. So the book finished, and I thought I was going to have this huge sabbatical and this celebratory break away from, you know, introspection. And then these songs started coming, and I was like, "Well, we're we're doing this," you know.
1: Do you remember what song was the first?
0: Uh, throwing good after bad. Mm, the final track. Yeah
1: is a beautiful song. What what sparked it?
0: Well, Bernie Toppin had sent me um, some poems. He sent me like three poems and they just really inspired me. And it's crazy because like as a young girl learning to write and um, deciding to write, I would pick up the album artwork to Captain Fantastic, Madman Across the Water, and I would read it backwards so that I wasn't hearing the songs at the same time. And then I could, I could put that thing down and write my chunk of songs, my six or eight songs that I write before we go into the studio by myself or that I at least sort of conceptualize. And so it was really surreal getting these letters from Bernie Taupin where like the, the words were just for me to read, you know, instead of picking up that album artwork. And it did the same thing. He just has a way of igniting poetry in me, like Cormac McCarthy does. You know, I'll read a Cormac McCarthy novel. It's just so viscerally, beautifully, and disgustingly articulated. And then I talk like that for weeks on end. I say shit like nary. You know, it's it's like Bernie Taupin has the same effect on me lyrically.
1: And it feels like right on time, the song that's already out, the single has been really embraced instantly when you're playing it live it feels like people are treating it like it's already a greatest hit Uh, and it feels like you kind of knew it was it was another key song for you what is the sort of origin story of that particular song
0: well when I wrote it and it had that the big note in it I thought maybe it should just happen once or you know and then I did it and I felt self-conscious like is this is this to Roy Eberson for for anybody to get it. Is it offy Is this an ego thing? Am I trying to build in a joke note, you know, at the end of my song or whatever? And it just felt so good to do that I was like, I need to stop thinking about the concept of how other people are going to hear this. And I just need to sing what, what I feel when I hit these choruses. And it has to happen every time because I want to do it every time. And if I get to that note, if I go, it wasn't right. It's not going to feel right. And I want to do it every single time. Mm. So that's when I knew. I was like, this is actually who I am. Like, I don't know why I cover Blue in front of Joni Mitchell. I don't know why I put the highest note I can sing, you know, in a song, every album from the story till now. But I want to keep myself on my toes. And I don't know why I do it. I don't want to stagnate as an artist or as a person. I want to be scared and challenge myself all the time. So I hope I live a long life.
1: <laughs> you seem to have a push and pull as far as the, the big dramatic moment in songs. I think with the joke in your Grammy performance, part of you wanted to pull out the big moment. You didn't want to do it. It's like this part of you wants to go for it and part of you gets gets scared or shies away from that part of yourself. But it, it seems like you're starting to resolve that, that conflict.
0: Yeah. I've actually had had to like talk it through in therapy a couple of times. I I guess I think it's like everywhere I go, there's like an audience full of me's, you know, and my sort of, and my brother were the same in this way. Like our mom and dad used to let us stay up late because Whitney was going to sing that song on the Grammys. And we wanted to know if she could really hit that note that's in the record, you know? or Celine Dion or Aretha, we would be like, "Is can they do it? Can they do it? It was almost like watching the Olympics, like an athletic (laughs) moment. And I really get off on doing these things. And on the joke, I just wasn't doing it every time. It just wasn't always happening. And I just thought I'm finally going to be on the Grammys. And I don't want, you know, Whatever me is going to be sitting at there, staying up late to see if I can hit the note on the end of the joke to see that I can't always do it. It's such a weird thing psychologically to do to yourself. But in part, I think
1: because people who work with you, just including Dave Cobb, I think said, no, you, you've got to do it. You can't not do it. This is the whole point of everything is to get to the place where you get to do that at the Grammys, right?
0: Yep. He would not let me cop out. And he was like, nonsense. You do it every time. It's fine. What are you talking about? And, you know... It was just just like that little extra push that I needed. And again, I did enjoy the terror of the whole thing. And it is a perfect cocktail of euphoria and excitement, but real nervousness and terror and fight or flight. fight or flight. When a person gets up in front of that many people and then they know how many people are watching at home and they know how much is hinging on that moment, that second, it's like that's proper fight or flight style adrenaline. We're not made to platform ourselves in that way as human beings. And when we do, it's not natural. It's like fear of flying or being up high.
1: But it really was just like one of those cinematic music industry moments that you can't make up and can't wish for. You know, even at as a well-established artist, it, it did kind of vault you to an, a new level, which is really something. And in your book, you, you have this sort of, before the epilogue, before the world hits the pandemic, you have this incredible scene that I had to read twice to make sure it wasn't a dream where, you, <laughs> where you're at Joni's house and Bonnie Raitt, one, another one of your heroes is there and Elton is there and you have your, your family at home and you have an every, and it's just this, it's a happy ending, except life does go on <laughs> from that moment. But what, what, it must've been an incredible, incredible moment. And it must've been weird to sort of relive that in the book.
0: I mean, I wrote that so fast, like that chapter, because it was just like, I wanted it to come out of me so much because I wanted to reread it and relive it. And, and, you know, you can't go back. I want to go back there all the time because I do think that is the peak moment in my life where I realized that my dream had come true, that I actually had made it. And, um, I'm sure there's plenty of other times that should have occurred to me in that way. But for some reason, that was that that triggering childhood culmination moment was that sitting on the floor, you know, leaning back against Joni Mitchell's knees and listening to Elton John sing your song.
1: And does that validation stay with you or does it does it ever get hard to recall that feeling? And does it feel like you have to prove to yourself all over again?
0: It stays with me. And thanks to you, it, the fact that it affected you and that you sort of like have this fever dream image of it, it's it's out here. It's in the world. You know, it's it's documented. It didn't have to be filmed. It just lives and it happened. And it was beautiful for me and Joni and the twins and Bonnie and Elton. You know, he talk, He still talks about it to this day. Every moment he talks about it. Man, I'll never forget that night over at Joni's house when we had hot dogs and,
2: and sang. <laughs>
1: I wanted to talk about this song Stay Gentle, which is has a really different sort of lilting feel to it, and it's just a really affecting song.
0: Stay gentle, keep the eyes of the child.
1: What can you say about just sort of writing and recording that and, and and also how you might define that particular feel it has?
0: Well, I'm lyrically I'm at this point in my life right now where I'm living with children, really gentle special you know children around me all the time got seven of them on the compound eight now and then also i'm kind of like living with and learning from my elders these mentors in life that you know the ones that we're talking about and there's a gentleness there too and there's this uh, span of time between childhood and sort of the sunset of our lives where we lose our tendency to be gentle, that that's not our first instinct for for some period of time. And I don't know if it's that we think that gentleness is akin to naivety or foolishness, but we're so willing to let it go, you know, in favor of being evolved. And I wanted to write a song just about what I was seeing. I was seeing really gentle older pillars in my life, and I was seeing really gentle babies. And I was just wondering what happens to us in between all that. And I wanted to write like a Somewhere Over the Rainbow song, just from a perspective of innocence, you know? Maybe urging us to try and stay gentle.
1: Yeah, it's it's just lovely. You wrote a song on your last album, by the way, I forgive you, called The Mother. That's just one of the most beautiful songs I've heard in years.
0: Welcome to the end of being alone inside your mind. You're tethered to another. There's and not
1: that many songs about parenthood. I mean, there are, but there's there's not that many super great up in the pantheon ones, I would say. And, and that one really stays up there. First of all, is it hard to perform that without getting emotional? Because <laughs> I, I find it hard to listen to it without getting emotional.
0: It was for like a really long time. And, and then it got easy because I was able to kind of carve out the little neuropathway and do the whole muscle memory thing. But to this day, if I catch eyes with somebody in the audience and they're crying I will lose my shit and it's strangely enough especially if it's a man Mm. I'm not I haven't unpacked that yet but I will look out there and I'll see men with tears streaming down their faces when I sing that song and I could get emotional talking about it like I don't know what they're feeling I don't know if it's that they're relating because parenthood is a thing whether you're a mother or a father or something in between or or if they're thinking about their mother, you know, and if something like that happens and I'm singing the song, it's like I am a paper thin margin away from falling apart. <laughs> yes. There's a couple other ones like that too. thing about.
1: There's the song Mama Werewolf. Did I get the title right? Yeah, Mama Werewolf.
0: Your mama is a werewolf with long, sharp teeth. I'm up all night
1: really interesting song and it, it seems to touch elliptically maybe on some of the the sort of inheritance of your dad's addiction issues and not necessarily that but but just whatever the sort of fallout was for you which is something you've written about what, what's what's going on in in that song you say if my inten- if my good intentions go running wild if I cause you pain my own sweet child won't you promise me you'll be the one my silver bullet in the gun what, what's going on there
0: well, it's my kids' favorite song by the way. They love that. They think that their mother is ridiculous. They think I'm heavy-handed that I can't touch anything without crushing it. They won't hand me a bug because they think it'll die in my care. They don't think I talk, they think I scream. And I guess I am just a kind of an explosive presence to them, you know. Other people would say that I'm I'm measured, but I was thinking about what you what you picked up on. And that's a, that's a Twins song. That's a, that's a Tim song that came by a hymn. And, you know, of course, because we live together and we're looking out the same windows every day, um, I picked up on right away the message of that song and related to it immediately and thought, yeah, I don't want to pass this shit on to my kids. I don't want to pass on my character flaws, being an adult child of an alcoholic, to my kid. Like, I want to better control my temper. I want to... Um, <clears throat> better control my tendency for codependence, you know? In fact, I'm even thinking to myself, like I've got the Al-Anon language at the tip of my tongue all the time when I sing that chorus and it says, promise me you'll be the one. And I'm thinking like, well, that's codependent and, and my children shouldn't have to be the people to lead me out of the darkness, you know? It's, it's a <clears throat> really, I think, vulnerable concept to admit how much we as parents have to resist passing on generational oppressive traits.
1: One of the things I take away from your book is how sort of creative you've been in shaping your life and not holding on to, you had people early on, it was more talking about, you know, things like like monogamy, but saying that, you know, there's no reason to hold on to heteronormative ideas, but it feels like you more applied it to just forming a kind of family. You have your ex living on your compound and, and being sort of an aunt to your children. And your relationship with the twins is extremely unique in music. You make your own way with with, with the way you, you relate to the world, which is a, probably a hard fought freedom to realize that you can do that.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of queer people do. I think they, they hit a certain age and they realize they have to surround themselves with people that understand them. Because even best intentions of your family don't translate to you being seen in the uniqueness of the way that you've been made and born to walk through the world. And so a lot of queer people find themselves in these culty situations like the one, you know, that I'm in and that I'm so proud of, and that has, um, given me such like an unspeakably beautiful life. I think that it comes from, and my dad actually pointed this out to me, that it comes from isolation and rejection you know, whether perceived or actual, and you surround yourself with cheerleaders, people to support you, people that, you try to surround yourself with unconditional love, you know, and then the baseline narrative is that you're queer, it starts there. You don't have to tell them 15 years later and, and hope that they'll, you know, that they'll catch you. They, they start that way, you know. So
1: for people who don't know you, you have a, a band situation with these two twins and you've kind of split things three ways with them uh, since the beginning. And although I didn't realize until I read your book the extent to which that's true, that even though you're a solo artist, you're also sort of a band called Brandy Carlisle. With, with I, I didn't quite, it's so unusual, and yet it seems to work so well. How, how did you even come up with that? And it, it strikes me that it requires a, a certain degree of cooperation from everyone, not just you, from them as well to put down egos to a certain extent and, and to be, and to serve your music. And it's just a really fascinating to me.
0: I know me too. I don't know why they wanted (laughs) to do that or what, what was about me all those years ago that made them go, yeah, we're going to cast our lot here actually. Cause they were adults. Like they had jobs, they made good money. They were beloved in Seattle, which is a big thing because Seattle's a tough nut to crack as the fighting machinists. And they were, and are just gorgeous and cool and just everything I felt like I was not. And even a callback from them or, you know, getting the message from them on my pager at the time was like, it would send a chill down my spine because it was like, oh my God, it's the twins. Like they're giving me the time of day, you know, they want to rehearse with me or they're going to come to my house. They're going to come to my birthday party. They're going to swing by the bowling alley. And I was absolutely enamored with them as was, you know, as was everybody that I knew. They, they radiate specialness. They just do. And I was like, just going to give it my absolute best shot to try to rope these guys into doing something with just me, because I knew with them that there was a path. I just knew there was a path into my dreams coming true. As soon as I saw them, I saw the potential for it and I just wouldn't give up on them. It was like a, you know, the first thing that happened when I met them was that, you know, they sort of snuck me into their show, um, in the university district. It was just absolutely insane. They were both playing guitar. They were both the lead singers. They were singing in harmony and they were great. And the band was great. And I remember thinking like, I actually remember thinking at the time, these guys are so good. I wish I was the singer. And it's weird because like, I don't know why I didn't see them as the singer. There was just something something not there, but very much there about what what they could do. And when we started a friendship, they were going to come and do this show with me. I don't know if you read about this in the book.
1: Didn't they actually ghost on you the first time?
0: <laughs> they t- completely stood me up. It was devastating. It was like I was the, the um, in the open mic night there, like the singer-songwriter night. I was getting a little bit of traction, you know. This place held maybe 150 people, 200 people, tiny stage in the U District called the Raindancer. Dancer. But the open mic host was like, "You should host, you know, an evening of music." And I bet the Rain Dancer will give it to you. And I wasn't even 21, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to do this." So I booked like a couple of kids from out in the country where I live, and my old band that I used to be in, The Shed. And then the headliner was that the fighting machinists were going to come because Tim was like, yeah, sure, we'll be there. And, you know, it's stage like? And let you know, backline. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, we got you. It's going to be like the best show you've ever played. You know, I've got this dialed in. I made posters. I had a stapler. I covered every freaking telephone pole in Seattle and from Georgetown to South Park to the University District to the Capitol Hill with fighting machinists at the Rain Dancer posters. Of course, packed it, sold it out. And as the evening progressed, it just became clearer and clearer that they were not going to show. (laughs) And they didn't show. And I just remember to myself, okay, it's going to have to work a little harder next time. But I had their little EP with Pain, was one of the songs. And The Story was a song on there. But it was like a little joke song. It was like this... Just Phil singing and Tim playing electric guitar, and in the middle of it, Phil goes into like a coughing fit. He goes, "I was made for you," <laughs> and they put that on their EP, and it's like this, this little punk rock thing. And I loved the song so much; it really spoke to me. And so when they didn't show up, I got up on stage by myself and played it. And it felt, it didn't feel at the time like, but when I think back, I think how prophetic is that. And so when I finally convinced them to be in a band with me when they committed, they never, to this day, have ever, ever let me down. They don't have I, it in them.
1: I realize it technically was written by Phil, but I, I just can't get my mind... It feels so much like you wrote it that I, I can't... I, 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 I can't get my mind around it.
0: All of these lines across my face Tell you the story Yeah, I think it was like the first... Thing i ever asked them for and I, I had to work up the courage to do it you know it was like one of their wives had called me and asked me to play at a park to save a park across the street from their dad or something like that we were just kids you know we didn't have any thing and i came to this park to play with them and i was like you guys i feel really like connected to this song like i want to sing this song is that okay and they were like hell yeah yeah bro that's fine and it's so crazy all these years later that the story was is such a defining career defining song for me and the twins but it makes perfect sense because we were born to be together and play together
1: among the many things that you've done is, is the high women there's such great stuff on on that album and, and it's it's so fun to see you guys perform together what would you say were some of the biggest things you learned from just from that collaboration from that band
0: oh man god i learned so many things I have country music, you know, in my soul. And actually doing country music was was so triggering in some ways, you know. I realized how on the outside of myself I felt as a child growing up. You're hearing these lyrics and you're seeing this paradigm play out in these songs and in, in this culture, this rural country music culture. And you're knowing that it'll never be a safe place for you as a person but you're still loving the music and you're still speaking with a southern accent and you're still wearing the fucking western shirt and it's like when i went to do the high woman it all came back and i was like well i'm about to be exiled and rejected and made fun of and excluded and uh it was really interesting watching the hair stand up on the back of my neck every time i did a high woman appearance or show only to be met with you know, the opposite. So it was actually kind of a healing and an amazing process for me. And it was a labor of love. It was a conversation starter. We wanted people to talk about what we were saying. And we knew it was going to never be something that we could do with our whole lives and our whole hearts, but that when we came together, it was, a, it was a labor of love. And something clicks. When the four of us get together, the way that we sing and the way that we play, you know, we were meant to find each other and, and, and create that project.
1: Has there been any talk of doing anything more?
0: Well, we have um, just a couple of things coming up that we're talking about, yeah, doing. And every time somebody gives us an opportunity to do something, we're so excited about it, you know. We can't always make it work because it's insane. It's like herding cats, you know. Supergroups are a crazy idea. But we always want to. We're always there for each other. We're always wishing each other the best and hoping that we can get together at some point.
1: Do you think, is it all going to be kind of just occasional live performances or is there a chance of, of recording a little more together?
0: It's a big philosophical discussion right now amongst the four of us, you know. There's a fine line between wanting to be a leader in a movement and platforming oneself when maybe we could facilitate for someone else. So we're trying to find ways mm-hmm. of empowering other women in the genre, which still desperately needs it is trying the conversation is happening but it's abysmal the
1: state of uh, country music for women you mean
0: country music for women and people of color and queer yeah. people it's just a desert yeah. it's a desert for it and watching um, the zeitgeist surround these artists and try to platform them and then watch the industry reject them is really um, maddening you know I'm pretty proud and grateful to be more aligned with the Americana genre and the things that we're doing as artists to platform and include each other. This is a really good year in Americana music, really good year.
1: How much do you think about genre as you're writing? Because you do draw on so many different traditions. And do you classify songs as you arrange them or as when you, when you talk to your, your bandmates or producers? Or do you try not to? Or how does that kind of work for you?
0: I didn't start thinking about genre until I did The High Woman, crazy enough. Like I remember T-Bone Burnett telling me, his, the things he's told me are so permeated. They're like tattoos. I remember him telling me, don't, I, don't I ever let anyone put you in a genre. He's like, you're rock and roll just say you're rock and roll. It covers all of it. And I always loved that. People would ask me what I did. I was like, I'm rock and roll. You know, Johnny Cash is rock and roll, Bob Dylan's country, vice versa. It's all all the same thing. I totally get that. As a teenager, I remember uh, getting to go up to Seattle for the gay pride parades. And, um, you know, they were always sequestered off to this street called Broadway up on Capitol Hill this tiny little spot and we would have our crazy parades up there. And I remember being a teenager thinking it was like the most free I'd ever felt and that we were moving the needle, you know, look how many of us there are and we, our money matters and we're going to get powerful. We can move the needle because look how many of us there are. So I'm starting to see genre in the same way that I see marginalized people becoming disenfranchised. If, if I do, you know, get behind a name or a genre I'm going to have an easier time affecting things in my industry, I'm an easier time changing things, you know. I'm watching this happen in in Americana. I'm on like a diversity board and we are sort of banding together with some intention at furthering the cultural impact of people of color and the architects of our genre and queer people in roots music. And I think that Genre doesn't have to just be a sound of music anymore. It can be a congregation of people moving really important ideas forward in our, our industry because we're musicians. We impact the culture. And so I like the idea of uh, identifying with, with genre and I, right now. And the high woman thing gave me real kick in the teeth. Like, hey, what, is, what does country mean to, to the culture right now? What does that mean?
1: In a way, it's a, it's an unfairly hard question, especially after reading the book. But uh, if you could talk to your younger self, what advice would you give her?
0: All of the things that I did to protect myself, like building a cult, you know, in a compound, and um, setting really high standards for myself vocally or musically—all these things that I did out of terror and um, adrenaline—I wouldn't change that I did them, and I wouldn't want to know sure that I was going to end up where I've ended up you know I always thought I was right on the cusp of like making it even when I was just singing in karaoke contests
1: and what do you think your teenage self would say to you now if they could
0: (laughs) my teenage self would stand in utter disbelief at what my life has unfolded into and I am totally in touch with her she's right here on my sleeve at all times going what the fuck is happening
1: you said in the book that sometimes the issue is actually kind of dampening the childhood self down especially like if you go to the grammys or something that that you sometimes you want her to just like kind of
0: yeah you just i just gotta like give her a little guitar and set her down in the seat next to me and say you're welcome here but you're not welcome here right now because you know i gotta do my job
1: Yeah, I was curious about that. Like, what is that? How does that sort of presence complicate things for you? What's the problem with with having your your young self be so present in, in an event like that?
0: Well, she's very nervous, you know? She's hungry and nervous, desperate to be included and for her dreams to come true. And she doesn't know that it's already happening and that... That that is what my life has has become, is that I don't have to be hungry. I am included. My dreams are coming true. So she's constantly nervous. It's all going to fall apart. And so in these big moments, you know, if you're going to sing at the Grammys or if you're going to sing fucking Blue in front of Joni Mitchell or if you're going (laughs) to, you know, whatever, play at the Gorge, it's like she's – I would never exclude my childhood self from seeing what my life has become. But she definitely needs to, to sit off to the side with a little guitar and, you know, Take it easy.
1: It's not the first time you played with Soundgarden. It's the first time on one of your own shows that the surviving members of Soundgarden show up and you and you played with them uh, the other night. First of all, like, what's that call like? How does the the logistics work of, of getting this reunion to happen on your stage?
0: Well, how it all came together was totally crazy because it was at that tribute, the Forum in LA, for Chris Cornell, and I had been asked to do Hunger Strike with Chris Stapleton, which was a blast, and then. I heard about an hour before the show that the person that was gonna sing Black Hole Sun, I won't name any names, but it's 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 a musician that notoriously doesn't show up for things, wasn't gonna show up to do Soundgarden's probably biggest, you know, commercial at right. least song. And I don't remember if it was Matt Cameron or just somebody behind the scenes that was like, I bet Brandy Carlisle can do it but I was like, Mm. not only can I do it, but, like, I'm there, and I hope he doesn't show up, and I don't need lyrics, and I got this. (laughs) But because the twins and I met at London Bridge Studios, which is where Pearl Jam 10 and Temple of the Dog were recorded, I mean, we are in the heart and the age of the Seattle grunge dynamic. We are inextricably linked to Soundgarden for life. We were they were our heroes. We were always talking about them and hoping that we'd bump into Kim Thayil somewhere out on the in Georgetown at the Central or whatever. Never did. I was like, I can't do it without the twins. Can the twins come and sing the Black Hole Sun? Black Hole and, and and Matt Cameron was like, "Absolutely, sure." And so I get up on stage with Soundgarden at this Chris Cornell tribute to sing Black Hole Sun, and me and the twins thought that was as good as it was ever going to get. We were like, that's it. We just fucking sang with Soundgarden.
1: Then you recorded with them for Record Store Day last, uh, last year, I think. And they
0: agreed to record with us. And then they agreed to come to our show and play with us. And it's like, what's next? I mean, what is even next after that?
1: Well, they do need a singer. <laughs> but you've, got, you've got a lot going on, though. <laughs> Let the record show that Brandy is pointing at herself.
0: I am such a Chris Cornell fan. I loved him so much. I was so devastated when he left us. Everything that he ever did. I think he has one of the top five most beautiful voices in human existence. And I was a huge fan of his solo album, too. I knew every word. It's just the end of the world. You need a friend in the world. He was like rock and roll Freddie Mercury.
1: For someone like you, you could get to the point of your career where that, where you have more things that are possible than you have time to do. I mean, like, you know, let's say the guys in Soundgarden wanted you to tour with them. That might be something you'd want to do, but who knows if you have the time or the, you know, the I w- space.
0: I would make the time.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: I, I, but I will bring the twins. Mama doesn't leave the twins out.
1: <laughs> you, that reminds me that you said early on that, that there were producers and stuff who, who thought you were too emotional in your vocal performances in the studio. Which is like crazy to me, because that's a mark of a great performance and also so key to what you do. How do you even make sense of that looking back that that someone would would tell you that that your performance in the studio was too emotional?
0: Well, I mean, emotional and loud can look a lot like the same thing. (sighs) And when somebody's trying to use vintage ribbon mics on your voice and the diaphragm can't handle the volume and, you know, ridiculousness that you're putting into it, it's a really hard sell on an engineer or producer that they're going to have to switch to an SM7. that They're going to have to use, you know, one of these boring things. But that is what I have to sing into. And Chris Cornell had to sing into him, too. And um, it's for the same reason. It's like, if I'm going to get emotional, I'm going to get loud. And... Some guys can't handle that. Some mics can't handle it.
1: Yeah, I, th- I believe there are stories of Chris Cornell specifically destroying expensive microphones with his voice. Uh, so, so there you, there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm just um, as
0: loud. I, in fact, we have really similar range, volume, and vocal style.
1: It does feel like there might be an embedded sexism or not even too embedded sexism there where if like, if the guy does that, like, oh, that's so badass. You're like Robert Plant. Oh, please, let's go but get the less delicate mic. Whereas you would get sort of scolded for it. That, yeah. If that, the woman does seems- it,
0: it's like the guy's like reptilian brain goes, mama's mad at me or something. <laughs> it's so fucked up. But I'm telling you, I've been dealing with it my whole career. It absolutely exists. And I don't, it doesn't occur to me until the fallout is happening that my volume and aggressive tendencies have upset, you know, one of the men in the room, whether they know why or not.
1: Hopefully, you, you pretty quickly got to the place where you stopped caring about whether you've upset one of the men in the room.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I did get to a place consciously where I stopped caring, but I think women do, sadly, develop workarounds. You know, it's like, the things our subconscious does are not always what we would want them to do you know i'm sure that there are times if if i'm around that kind of sensitivity i may not even have the ability to go the distance vocally because i know that it won't be um easily digestible for whatever reason but that happens less and less and less turning 40 is the best for that
1: who do you look to for just the the long arc of the career as far as people who who evolved i mean I, I guess Joni and elton any anyone else who you who you look for is just people who just keep going and going and 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 evolve and mm. improve
0: um dolly god dolly but she's a whole other ball of wax i mean she's just a totally different kind of um public person but just just musically spiritually as a leader you know her politics She's a really good um, person and a major bridge builder between people, so I love the way that she walks through the world. I don't know where we'd be without Dolly actually. And then also like on a level of how I'd like to be seen or felt or, or understood in, in 20, 30 years, I'm, I'm a really big fan of, of uh, Bonnie Raitt. I think Bonnie Ray is just the picture of dignity and independence and artistic integrity. And, um, there's just nothing she does that I don't sort of worship and John Prine, the way that John Prine never stopped becoming a better songwriter. That was really astounding. You know, you do sometimes see a stagnation or, or a, a degeneration in creativity. I think sometimes in all of our lives and we had strides and whether they last for a long time or whether there's just, the sun just sets on certain things uh, creatively or whatever, but, I mean, the Tree of Forgiveness was probably the best record that, that John Prine ever put out. And he just always put that shit first. He just always put his songwriting first. And he never stopped looking to younger people for inspiration spiritually, too, which was really cool to see that, the way that he gave so many folks a leg up and included us and took us on tour and let us sing with him and told us his jokes. And now that now his... He's alive in, in all in all of us all the time.
1: Do you ever think about a big pop hit, or does it seem like a, another universe?
0: It seems like another universe, and you know I've always been like anti-hit, like my whole career. Like I don't want to hit. I don't want to hit. Hits the kiss of death. You don't want to hit. You want people to love your albums. You want people to sing all your songs. You don't want the hit. You don't want that to see that line of people leaving your concert after you play the the song. You know, and so I've always just rejected the concept of of a hit since have
1: you gone so far as to throw out songs that sound like the hit because there's people who do that
0: <laughs> not consciously but maybe subconsciously there was one time when at Columbia wanted me to make a song a single and I was I mean this is probably why they dropped me I was so against it I was going to make their life a living hell if they put the single out that they wanted to put out and they respected me and put out a different single and of course it didn't do shit. And I regret that sometimes.
1: Which was the song?
0: It was the song that year from my album Give Up the Ghost. I must have been sleeping, must have been drinking, I haven't been They wanted that to be a single. I felt like it was exploitive. I didn't want that to be a song that I woke up every morning and sang on Triple A radio. And I didn't want it to be a hit, you know. It was about suicide of my friend. And I was conscientious of the fact that The Fray had just had a massive hit song with suicide being the subject matter. And I was so afraid that as a concept that that would happen to that song. And, and um, so I fought really hard to suppress spotlighting that song.
1: Well, it seems reasonable.
0: Maybe maybe it is reasonable. Maybe I don't regret it, but it's it's. I don't think it's ever a good idea to not follow genuine passion. And I feel like the people that loved that song just genuinely loved it.
1: Well, an aversion to hit singles, it would probably be a. That's a very Seattle uh, trait for you, I guess. You know, I, I know I know Eddie Vedder would. You know, there's that. Lost Dog's B-Sides album and there's songs on there that are clearly like should have been on the albums and would have been hits but he was tossing them off left and right so there's, you know Yeah, maybe he was doing
0: it too Yeah, one time the story was a hit in Portugal like it was a hit and I remember going to Portugal because this song was like a hit it was like platinum and it was in a beer commercial and people in Portugal just King loved this song and I got to go to this festival where I was the headliner of this festival and I'd never seen anything like it and we got out on the stage and it, I was look, I didn't even know what I was looking at. it looked like a city. It didn't look like an audience. And when we got to that ding 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 and I went to go all of these, the audience shouted it at me so loud. Wow that I, I was almost brought to my knees by it. I was like, this is a hit this is what it feels like to have a hit. And it wasn't six months later, I couldn't play a barn in, in Portugal.
1: <laughs> so your point, yeah, they're proving <laughs> your point, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Interesting.
1: <laughs> and that is today's episode. Thanks so much to Brandi Carlisle for joining us. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume. And in the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, which is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.